Well, I suppose in the past the Scots were famous for raiding over the border, so I hope this, uh, this raid of this Scotsman isn't going to be too painful for you tonight. I've only really once been to Newcastle uh, before tonight. I've passed through it, or passed around it, I should say, perhaps many times. The previous occasion was a visit to St. James's Park, uh, not to see a football match, but uh, <laughs> to hear Bob Dylan sing. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little while ago now. Well, I've been asked to to speak to you this evening on the subject of uh, male and female. You're looking at the the biblical doctrine of man or humanity, and uh, tonight we're looking at this area of male and female. And the subheading I want to give to that is equality and complementarity. Male and female, equal and complementary. Now, that is based upon the, the essential doctrine here, which I'm sure you've been already thinking about in previous occasions, uh, the doctrine of the image of God. Because as human beings, we were created in the image of God. And it is in the image of the triune God. Uh, the Trinity, one God, three persons. So we have there the the unity and also a diversity. And in the human race, we have one humanity, one human race, and yet two very obvious different types of personhood, two sexes, male and female. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, plural pronouns are used in that classic statement of the doctrine of the image of God. Let us make man in our image and let them rule. God says, let us make man in our image and let them rule. So both singular and plural uh, pronouns are used of both God and man. The unity in community in God, they are hinted at, the Trinity, three persons, one God, is linked to the unity in community of the human race. One humanity, so that it's called man, but male and female, two types of personhood. So the diversity of the human race is specifically spelt out in maleness and femaleness. There are other aspects to the diversity of the human race, as we know. There's now diversity of races and languages and all the rest of it, but one of the essential diversities is, of course, this one of sex or of gender, as it now tends to be called. The image of God in humans involves persons existing in community and particularly in the community of marriage, which we'll look at to some extent this evening as well. And this involves, of course, the capacity to love and to be loved. That's essential to the very heart of God. God is love. And the Lord Jesus said that the Father loved him before the foundation of the world. And so when he created us in his image, he created us with this capacity for community, this capacity for marriage, this capacity to love one another. So let's look then at what I've highlighted as two aspects of what the Bible teaches us about Uh, male and female. First, the equality of male and female. 
In the creation, the equality of worth of male and female is stressed. The point at which humanity first existed fully as the image of God was not the creation of Adam, the single man, but it was on completion of the creation of the woman from the man. The creation of the single man was not the perfect expression of God-likeness, because God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And it was only when humanity was differentiated into male and female that God looked at what he made and was pleased and called it very good. Because we read, so God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. You know that there's the uh, the difference between Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1 gives the big picture, including the creation of man, the creation of the human race, male and female. And then in chapter 2 we get into more detail as to how that creation took place. But the emphasis in both chapters is that the full image of God was not expressed until the creation of male and female, Adam and Eve. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, the unity in in diversity in God, he says, let us make, is reflected in the unity in diversity in the human race, male and female. And this is the doctrine of the Trinity. God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, each equal in deity, though differentiated in person and relationship. The Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit. Persons who have their own identity. It was the Son who came into the world, not the Father. It was the Holy Spirit who was poured out upon the church Pentecost, not the Son or the Father. And indeed, we're given some hint, and a hint is really all it can be because the the majesty of the the, the Godhead is beyond our comprehension, but we're given some hint as to something of the interrelationships. The Son is eternally begotten by the Father. That doesn't mean to say the Son came into existence at a certain point, in time or even a certain point of eternity. He is eternally begotten. There is this eternal relationship of begottenness, if we might call it that, between the Father and the Son. And the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is the way that theologians have expressed it, uh, really stretching language to its limit, saying these things in order not to remain silent because we can't fully comprehend God, but we are given these hints in the Bible as to these relationships that aren't just apparent in the working of the Trinity in this world, but refer back to the very essential nature of God. Similarly, the human race exists in two types of person, male and female, each equal in humanity, though differentiated in person and relationship. Just as the persons of the Trinity are equal with one another in deity, in godhood, so human beings, whether male, female, or any other differentiation we might make, we stand equal in humanity. 
Thus, in the image of God, the doctrine of the image of God, we have a basis for both the essential humanity and equality of every human being, male and female, and the validity and value of our own individual personalities. Each human being is a unique person, even as each divine person is unique. Each human being has their own unique contribution to make with their own unique combination of gifts. There are differences between male and female. Not just the obvious differences, but differences of ways of thinking, ways of looking at things. And that is part of what the image of God means in this world. The complexity and the diversity that God has placed in the human race. I want to just mention briefly three areas where we ought to see this equality expressed. Equality in society. Now we know that down through history there have been great inequalities in the human race and still to this day in all sorts of ways. Inequalities because of race. Inequalities because of sex or gender. All sorts of inequalities. But there are essential emphasis in the Bible that would stress the equality of human beings. And here we're restricting our, our subject to male and female. Both male and female are made in God's image. The reflection of God in Eve is no less important than the reflection of God in Adam. They may be slightly different in the sense that they are not uh, mirror images of one another, yet they are equally reflections of God. They equally have the capacities to create to love, to speak in language, all the other things that we associate with being reflections of God. And specifically we are told in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 that both male and female are to rule over creation. That's something I never really noticed before until I was thinking about this for tonight. It's not just Adam who is to rule over creation. Male and female, as God created The human race, male and female, they are to rule over the creation. So that's what we may call our creation or cultural mandate to live in this world, to exercise our given lordship over this creation. That is to be equally done by women as well as men. So that encompasses pretty well the whole of life. We look at some areas where we can see the Bible has something, a different kind of emphasis to make. But in general, our starting point is that male and female are equal, equally made in God's image, equally ruling over the creation in terms of work, in terms of science, in terms of art, in terms of anything you care to mention. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we may be aware as we read and as we absorb the kind of culture of the Old Testament, we may feel that it is a pretty chauvinistic kind of society, very much emphasis on what men were doing. But there are certain emphasis in the Old Testament that bring out to us the importance, the intrinsic importance that was recognized for women. For instance, in the Ten Commandments, the Fifth Commandment, 
does not say, honor your father. It says, honor your father and your mother. The mother was given equal status with regard to the children and therefore equal status in society with the father. Now this is pretty essential because that commandment is viewed as not just speaking about family life, but about speaking about authority in society in general. Particularly theologians, reformed theologians over the years interpreted this commandment as referring to the respect due to all in authority. So here a woman is considered in a position of authority. And of course, another emphasis of the equality of male and female in society is that both are, of course, essential for the human race. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 11, Paul stresses that neither is independent of the other. Man and woman, male and female. Woman came from man in the beginning when God created Adam first and created Eve from Adam. But then he says, man is born of woman. And he stresses this uh, equality so that they are making an equal contribution, as it were, to humanity. And of course, at a common sense level, it is obvious. Without that relationship, there would be no human race. Both are essential. So these are some ways in which we can see various hints in the Bible as to equality in society in general. But then more specifically, equality in marriage. In the beginning, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it is stressed that there is to be only one woman to one man in marriage. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and those two shall be one flesh. In other words, it's being stressed that there is an equality within marriage. It was not permissible in the original creation mandate there for a man to take more than one wife or for a woman to have more than one husband. One woman to one man, an equality of relationship. And although this was departed from, as we know, to some extent in Old Testament times, even to the extent that the law of Moses permitted divorce and permitted divorce really on quite loose grounds, And Jesus says that was done because of the hardness of their hearts. Yet when Jesus is expounding what the Christian view is to be, he goes back not to Moses, but he goes back to the creation ordinance. And he appeals to this verse, as also the Apostle Paul appeals to it. A man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and these two shall be one flesh, stressing this uniqueness of the marriage relationship and this equality of man and woman in that relationship. And there he emphasizes particularly that he's defending the rights of women because up until that time, men abused the law of Moses and simply dismissed their wives, divorced them for trivial reasons. And he says the only grounds on which anybody could divorce Someone was on the grounds of fornication or adultery. 
So Jesus there was defending the rights of women in marriage, this right to be the wife of one husband, just as the husband has the right to be the husband of one wife. So there's this equality in the relationship. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which is a long passage on on, uh, the relationship between man and woman, uh, he there addresses husband and wife equally. He says uh, in verse 2, But since there is so much immorality, each man should have his own wife, and each woman her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife's body does not belong to her alone, but also to her husband. In the same way, the husband's body does not belong to him, but also to his wife. And in fact, if you read this passage carefully, Paul is carefully at pains to stress this complementarity between the two. They are to be treated equally, having equal rights and equal responsibilities. So there we have, again, some of the emphasis of the Bible about the equality of male and female, this time in the area of marriage. Fourthly, equality in the church. Now, the key verse that is always quoted about this and and other areas is in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. In Christ, there is neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. And that lays down this essential equality within the church. We are equally sinners in need of salvation, whether male or female. We were equally originally made in the image of God. And we still bear the marks of that image in terms of the godlike abilities that we have as human beings, even although we have perverted these in our own sinfulness. And we are equally Candidates for salvation, invited to come to believe in Jesus Christ. And when we do so come to believe, we stand equal as believers in him. The female soul is as valuable as the male soul and vice versa. There is no distinction made. We are all one in Christ Jesus. But it goes beyond that. Because... There is an emphasis on equality in the New Testament that is often overlooked. We see, for instance, Jesus' attitude to women. Now, it was really revolutionary for his day. And it has been a great part of our Christian inheritance that has led to freedom for women in our society that has been influenced by the Christian faith. But Jesus' attitude to women was revolutionary. A Jewish rabbi, such as Jesus was accounted to be, would not even speak to his wife if he met her in public, far less any other woman. He would ignore her. It was considered not right to take note of a woman in public or to have anything to do with them, and particularly the laws about uncleanness were developed to a ridiculous extent by the Pharisees to make it almost impossible for women to play any part in the church of that time. Jesus, by comparison, in all his dealings with women, treated them equally with men. If Jesus had met a man 
by a well in Samaria, he would, of course, have spoken to him. If a Jewish rabbi had met a fellow Jew there, he would have spoken to him. If he had met a Samaritan, he wouldn't. So there's a double whammy here by Jesus. He's breaking the convention about Jews and Samaritans not of any dealings with each other. But here, importantly, he is also breaking this taboo about speaking to a woman in public. And it would appear, speaking to her, there was just the two of them. His disciples had gone off to get food. And so Jesus here was demonstrating the, uh, the value of the individual female human being and his interest in her and his concern for her and her, his placing value upon her as a human being in her own right. And he was prepared to break those taboos or those traditions that would have prevented her taking an equal place in society and in the question of salvation with men. But then when we come on to the the church itself, again, I think it's often overlooked that at the day of Pentecost, there is a stress not only on the men present, but on the women. If we read that passage carefully, I think we can see that there were uh, a group of disciples, quite a small group, numbering about 120 there in Jerusalem, And they included not only the apostles, but also some women are mentioned. And then when we come following through from chapter 1 of Acts to chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, it is this group that is being talked about on whom the Spirit of God was poured out. And it's specifically, specific reference is made to this fact in the quotation that uh, Peter gives. There, as he preaches on the day of Pentecost. Because in Acts chapter 2 there, and uh, verses 17 and 18 in particular, where he's quoting from the prophecy of Joel, he says, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. So it seems quite clear that this was the fulfillment of this prophecy. That here God was pouring out his spirit on men and women. And women as well as men were speaking the word of God in other languages. And people were hearing them. Those who had come from different parts of the world were hearing in this astonishing way, the gospel being explained in their own native language where they now lived. And so God was stressing there at the day of Pentecost an essential thing about the Christian church. That every member of the Christian church is going to play a part in the work of the church. Here it was simply telling other people, conversing with others, or speaking to others or telling others in some way the good news about Jesus Christ. And we see something of that emphasis continuing in the New Testament church, where we see that there were many women who played important parts, important roles in the early church. For instance, the most famous example is Priscilla. 
it's not only her husband Aquila who takes uh, Apollos aside when it's clear that he hasn't got the sort of right end of the stick. He doesn't know all about the gospel of Jesus Christ. He only knows what John had taught and so on. It's Priscilla as well who takes him aside and discusses these things with him and they explain to him more clearly what the gospel is and the full outworking of it in Jesus Christ. So Priscilla had a role at that level. But we see also someone like... uh, Lydia opening her home to the apostles and many women being mentioned in the letters that uh, Paul wrote speaking about the essential roles that many women had in the work of the church. So often in the church and particularly in the evangelical church we've got hung up on office or on ordination and we've forgotten about work. And in the New Testament, the emphasis on work, on function, on what's actually done by Christians. And women played a huge part, an equal part, in the work that was being done in terms of helping the work of the gospel. So there we have some of the emphasis that we have in the the Bible about the equality of the sexes, male and female. But then I'd like to say something also about the complementarity of male and female and how the differences of male and female complement one another and are intended to. And here we have an emphasis on the community aspect that we've mentioned of the image of God. The doctrine of the image of God also stresses the importance of community, the community of marriage in particular, but community in general as well. Being made in the image of God means that we're made for fellowship. Although God exists as three distinct and equal persons, those persons exist in eternal fellowship. This is expressed most memorably in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, that is Jesus, the Son, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Son's being with God being towards God or being face to face with God, as it's sometimes expressed, speaks of this eternal community, this communion or fellowship of God, (coughs) the Son and the Father being in an eternal relationship of communication and of love. And this speaks to us, too, of our relationships as human beings. Because human beings are made in the image of God, it means that we too have a need for community. And community in various ways, but particularly the community of marriage, is expressed in this complementarity of the male and female. One aspect of this I would like to speak about for a moment is what we may call asymmetry. Now, I suppose we all know what symmetry is. Symmetry is when something is like an exact mirror image of something else. But asymmetry is when it's not an exact (coughs) mirror image. Now, asymmetry is, I believe, quite an important concept in science, in, in physics in particular. It's believed that there was an asymmetry in the origin of the universe. If there had been no asymmetry between matter and antimatter at a crucial point following the Big Bang, there would be no universe, scientists tell us. 
because, of course, matter and antimatter would have cancelled one another out and there would be nothing. But it's believed there was an asymmetry. Now, if this is true, it ought not to surprise us as Christians because, according to the Bible, God did not create a uniform, symmetrical universe. Instead, the universe is full of unbelievable complexities and asymmetries, yet existing in harmony. And this reflects the very being of God himself, who exists in the ultimately mysterious complexity and asymmetry of three persons in community and in love. God is love. And this love is not self-love. When the Bible tells us God is love, people might have the wrong idea that, oh, God has just loved himself all the time. No. This love is the love of the persons of the Trinity. It is not love of the same, but love of the other. The Father loving the Son. The Father loved me before the foundation of the world, Jesus said. That's the love that is in the heart of God. The love of the other. The Father loving the Son. The Father loving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loving the Son. And so on. So there is this what we may call asymmetry or diversity within God himself. And the image of God in human beings reflects this asymmetry. It's the male-female pair that most perfectly expresses the image of God. Remember, Adam and Eve, male and female together, expressed the image of God. It was not good for the man to be alone. He could never express the love of God in the world. One man. There was no one to love. Nor was the perfect expression a man existing face to face with another male. That would never express love for the other. That would be love of the mirror image. The perfect expression of the image of God was the asymmetric human pair, male and female, sharing a common humanity, but not identical, each loving the other. To put it in the words of a U2 song, we're one, but we're not the same. And that expresses it pretty simply. We're one, but we're not the same. Now, this has profound implications for sexual ethics. Creation expresses the mind of God. The pattern of creation as God created the world and he said it was very good. <coughs> the pattern of love, the pattern of relationship he has laid down is not self-love, it is not homosexual love, or promiscuous love, but it is faithful, heterosexual <coughs> love, what we call marriage. It is not self-love. It was not good for the man to be alone. It was not homosexual love. God didn't create another man. He created Eve. Nor did he create several Eves. For Adam, or several Adams for Eve, but one man, one woman. And he said, This is to be the pattern of human love. So there is this, what we've called this essential asymmetry, that of course makes the relationship of marriage, that makes the human race, this asymmetry of male and female. But a corollary of this, or an implication of this, is 
submission in marriage. It's in this context that the submission of the wife to her husband is emphasized by Paul. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 24, the passage we read, (coughs) the pattern given there is the submission of the church to Christ. He says, the headship of the man is to be like Christ's relationship with the church, and the submission of the woman is to be like the church's submission to Christ. But in 1 Corinthians 11, he takes it to an even deeper level. It is the submission of Christ the Son to the Father that is the pattern. He says, the head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. The eternal Son of God, though co-equal with the Father, willingly submitted himself to the Father's will in his role as Redeemer, in his role as Savior of the world. So Jesus, about whom there is no question in the heart of anyone who accepts what the Scripture says, at any rate, that he is co-equal with the Father. He says, I and the Father are one. Yet he willingly submitted himself to the Father's will. And in that sense, God the Father was his head. So if that is the case, then what is being asked of women should not be viewed as some kind of imposition, but viewed as this amazing opportunity to follow the example of Jesus Christ. It is not saying that the woman is inferior to the man, because the Lord Jesus Christ is not inferior to God the Father in his Godhead. He is co-equal with God the Father. And yet he willingly submitted himself to the will of the Father in coming into the world. Now there are two spheres where this submission is emphasized in the, in the Bible. And I would say, perhaps controversially, only two areas. Those are marriage and leadership in the church. I don't believe there is an emphasis in the Bible that says there is to be a submission of, male, of female to male in society in general. But we can debate that later. But in marriage, it's specifically said, these passages that we've referred to, they're about marriage. But it is not an inferiority. It is a willing submission. And similarly, in leadership in the church, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says that a woman is not to have authority over a man. Now, some people pass this off as saying, oh, well, this is just the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, remember, was writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But if we look at the example of Jesus Christ, And the pattern he laid for the church, we see, in a sense, where Paul got his doctrine. Jesus, who was so revolutionary about his attitude to women and the place of women in society and in the church, yet when he chose the leadership of the early church, he chose male apostles. Now, to my mind, that is impossible to get round. 
There may be all kinds of reasons why we might want today in our present climate to try to get round what the Apostle Paul says. But the pattern Jesus lays down is so clear. And Jesus of anyone would have done it differently if it was the right way to do it. Jesus didn't do that just to conform to some cultural norm. He laid down the pattern for his church. Now, although there is that emphasis on this willing submission of women within the church as well as within the family, that is not to say that, of course, women haven't a huge role to play. Because we've talked about that, the equality of men and women in the general work of the church. And so often in history and right at the present day, much of the work of the church is being done by women. Often unrecognized, unheralded, but it is being done. And we need to remember this tremendous role that women have in the church as well as men. There's another point I just want to make, and that is the emphasis on what we may call community and singleness that has uh, something to say in this area of male and female. Marriage is the highest expression of the communal aspect of the image of God, but it is by no means the only one. As image bearers of God, we are by nature communal social creatures, and we repress and sublimate that instinct at our peril. I think this is something that often we as Christians, and perhaps evangelical Christians, have been guilty of. We must recognize that we are not isolated individuals. There's been a great emphasis on individualism, and there is to be that to a certain extent. But the Bible stresses as well as the importance of individual commitment, it stresses the importance of involvement in community, in the church, and in society. We've emphasized the unique place of marriage. However, some of us may never marry through gift or through necessity. Now, does that mean that somehow we are less than human or we are being disobedient? Well, it's clear from the teaching of the Apostle Paul that this is not so. He himself was single and he was even encouraging other people at that particular time to be single. Even more decisive on the question is the example of Jesus. He never married, yet he's the perfect expression of the image of God in an individual. But yet he did not live an isolated, individualistic type of life. We see the communal aspect of his being the perfect image of God in his taking a full part in family life and in his surrounding himself with people, men, women and children. In his choosing the twelve to be with him, and in his having close friends in particular, Martha, Mary, Lazarus, Peter, James, John. He, although not married because of his calling, was involved with people. And so, although our calling might, to be, might be to be single, yet, whether male or female, we have an important role to play in the work of the church 
and in society. And that is also part of this complementarity of male and female. Though we might not be involved in the close, intense relationship of marriage, we will be involved in all sorts of other relationships, non-sexual relationships, expressing something of that diversity of the human race into all different kinds of personalities and characters, contributing to the whole of the church, contributing to the good of society. The perfect expression of humanity is not the independent modern person, nor is it the reclusive religious person, but it is the Christ who loved fellowship and friendship with other people. I just want to give one or two footnotes before I close on what we may call the sexuality of male and female. Of course, we've already stressed male and female in marriage. But of course, it needs to be stressed that God created us as sexual beings. It's not just general community in marriage, general friendship or fellowship. It is particularly a sexual relationship, male and female. And God gave us marriage for the expression of this sexuality in sexual love with one another. So every other sexual expression is wrong. It is contrary to our nature and to the plan of God for our happiness. He created us originally for one another in this exclusive relationship of man. And everything else, premarital sex or the breakdown of marriage and partners going off with other partners, homosexual relationship, whatever breaks this pattern that God has laid down of one man, one woman in marriage is wrong. But then the other footnote I want to make is this, on what is now tends to be called gender. We can make too little of gender, kind of treat the differences or divergences between men and women as of little importance, kind of a kind of unisex attitude to people. Now, I think that, which has to some extent been an influence in our recent history, that loses the the courtesy and the respect and the humor that often goes with the recognition of differences between men and women. But on the other hand, we can make too much of gender. And again, there's been that tendency in recent history, stressing that the really enormous difference between men and women and the way they look at the world. And that can lead to gender confusion. It's not the only cause, but it can lead to it. There there is no reason why certain characteristics are more male than female. So often, you know, we have the kind of cliche, oh, emotional, that's female. Of course, that's nonsense. Jesus wept. Emotion was very much part of his psyche, part of his personhood. And for someone to feel, oh, I'm showing female tendencies or, oh, I'm showing male tendencies, that is rubbish. We have a common humanity and we ought not to be hung up too much on that kind of thing. Yes, there no doubt are divergences. But we should celebrate more our common and joint humanity and the great diversity of that in male and female as in every other way. 
So then in conclusion, men and women are equal. We've stressed something of that equality that we have there in the Bible. In humanity, in dignity, in worth. And men and women are equal in salvation and in being necessary parts of the body of Christ in this world, in serving him here. But also men and women are complementary. They have different gifts, different perceptions, different roles to play in certain situations. That is part of the pattern God has laid down and is for the benefit of the church and of the world. Thank you very much indeed for that very clear presentation. You have disappointed me for the last few weeks in the sense that uh, there's been a dearth of questions. On the one hand, I said last week and was reprimanded for it, I don't really approve of questions. But having submitted to the authority of the Christian Institute in this sense that questions be decreed, I am very disappointed that we're not getting any. And so, you have um, a minute to talk among yourselves and I want some questions and uh, don't be afraid I think one of the one of the things that I tried to take a lead last week is that some people are very frightened to ask questions because they feel they're in the presence of an expert who knows everything some of us just blunder through it and ask the question that comes into their mind Ian you Well, who but Ian would ask a question like that? <laughs> of course you may ask questions. You may even ask the first question, but you've got a minute to think about it. Is that right, Dennis? And Ian has left the room, I see. A good sign. Thank you very much. The first question from a lady. On the mission field, there are very few men. And women are left in positions of church planting, teaching, um, and literally supporting the emerging churches. Would you like to comment on that, please? Uh, I was frightened when John was speaking about being an expert, because I'm no expert in any of this, <laughs> this field, so please don't feel uh, that you can't ask questions. Um, I don't really know a straightforward answer to that question, apart from to say that if something, if we see something that needs to be done, we should do it. Um, and if there is nobody else there, if there's no uh, minister, if there's no preacher, uh, then the gospel has to be preached, people have to be taught. Whatever, whatever hat we were wearing when we were doing it maybe isn't all that important. But I think possibly it should be stressed that, yes, the woman is not the, the minister of the word or whatever, but in, a, in an exceptional circumstance she's being an evangelist or whatever we would call it. Uh, certainly in the New Testament church there were women prophetesses whatever they were um, it's maybe not all that clear but certainly they had some kind of role along that level to my mind the question of leader, male leadership in the church is to do with that I think is to do with leadership um, and that women working with, with men or under the, the authority of say the minister or whatever could, could meet that now, in what circumstances that would exactly be, I don't know. But the situation you're, you're envisaging is a, a missionary situation where you're saying there is, n there is no man to do this. And, 
I, I think the emphasis is that we must do what what we see to be to be done and pray for God to to send someone along who's maybe more gifted than I am to do it or, or whatever. Is that not an indictment on the men for not taking God's call? I think right. that's possibly right, yes. That's right. Yeah. You beat me to it, Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> there was a question here. There's a question here. Yes, sir. Yes, um, I can turn them on. Can a man or a woman say that they are divorced, can they remarry again whilst both partners still alive? Did you all get the question? Mm-hmm. Now we want the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, my view on the whole question of divorce and remarriage is, is quite straightforward. It may not be accepted by everyone. In, to my mind, there are two grounds of divorce in the New Testament. One is adultery and the other is desertion. Adultery is made clear by Jesus and desertion is made clear by the Apostle Paul. Uh, in that passage, in fact, we read from 1 Corinthians 7. Now, I believe that uh, where God puts asunder, that is, in a situation of adultery or a situation of desertion, then uh, you would say the innocent party is entitled to remarry. Now, that is my, princ- that is my position in principle. In practice, it is actually very difficult in the age we're living in to apply these principles clearly. And it must be very similar to the situation that the Apostle Paul had to deal with in first century uh, Greece, uh, Greek and Roman society, where um, marriage was very complicated and divorce. Uh, but I would say these are, these are the biblical principles. So I would say in those cases where there has been a divorce, the innocent person is entitled to remarry. But you get situations where people, uh, say, were divorced for what we would call non-biblical reasons. They remarried, uh, guilty parties, and then they were converted. What do you do in that situation? I think the New Testament position is the Apostle Paul seemed to do is simply take people where they were and and move on from there rather than trying to unravel the, all their pasts. Because um, I think the scripture says that if they do remarry, they are committing adultery. Um, that is in the case... Sorry, you're meaning two people who have been divorced... And, uh, but they're still alive. If and one their partners dies, are still alive. If one dies, the one that remains can remarry. But if both party is alive, they cannot yeah. remarry. I, I wouldn't go along with that in terms of the innocent party, no. Uh, that's not my understanding of mm-hmm. New Testament. But it's an area very much open to debate. But also, did um, Adam had both sex, male and female sex organs? <laughs> I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, I don't think uh, Adam was a hermaphrodite. I think Adam was a man. But by whatever process God did it, it stresses the essential humanity of male and female. We were not made two separate beings, but we came from one, as Paul says. The whole human race has come from one. Um, But God differentiated from the male, he differentiated female, and this has given the full picture of the image of God in the world. That would be my understanding. I mean, there's a comment. I mean, I, my background, I came out of 
uh, marital breakup, divorce, all the wrong stuff. Right. But God's grace converted me. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it's God's grace, God's will, God's power that gets us through all the rubbish. And, yeah. and, and then we have to let him carry on, don't we? I mean, yes. it's God's grace yeah. and God's love for us as individuals. Is it? Okay. Pam. I just wanted to go back to the question of women holding office in the church. Um, my views were very similar to the ones you've expressed uh, tonight um, and have been over the years. But a very close friend of mine, a female friend of mine, is actually a minister in the Church of Scotland and has been for some 10, 12, 15 years now maybe. And uh, I was a little sceptical when she first uh, took on this work. And... Um, but over the years, my views have changed because I've seen the blessing in that church and the people coming to know Christ. And I just wonder, um, I, I cannot accept that she's in the wrong place or doing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. And um, would you say that denominations like the Church of Scotland have got it completely wrong and have gone wrong? Um, and indeed, denominations in England, of course, that allow women to hold office. Mm -hmm. Or do you just believe, like on the mission theory, that it's God making the best of God about I think probably the answer is a little bit of both because I believe churches have gone wrong when they've abandoned the biblical position but there, there's no doubt that, that God has blessed the ministries of some evangelical women in these situations no, that's right but again, is it not because you know, God is kind of overruling uh, God does not leave himself without witness and where, you know, there haven't been men coming forward for the ministry. I mean, it, it's, it's just dreadful at the present situation. There just aren't enough candidates for the ministry. Uh, God is perhaps overruling and, and using women in that situation. But I don't think we should let, uh, we, we shouldn't let our practice dictate our doctrine. We sh it should be the other way around. I think we should look at all these situations compassionately and all the rest of it. But we start with the Bible and try to to implement that. That would be my position. Right. Um, let's say purely hypothetically, <laughs> purely hypothetically, I'm acquainted with Christian couples who share the doctrine you presented perfectly. And yet what strikes the eye is that the woman is so capable of leading and the man is so obviously capable of following. The hypothetical situation. No Is that a statement or a question? <laughs> I mean, I think there is no doubt that, that there are many, many women who are very gifted in terms of, of taking a lead. But I think in the marriage relationship, she should use that giftedness in encouraging her, her partner to, to take a lead and to be stronger. And many women are very, very skillful at doing that, and uh, they, know, they know how to, to use the situation. But um, I think this whole question is not just one for the church, but in the whole of our society. I think at the moment we are really suffering a crisis of masculinity, of what it actually means to be a man. And it has all sorts of uh, consequences in terms of sexuality and all the rest of it. And I think as a church we ought to be trying to give a lead and encouraging the right kind of masculine leadership. The headship of Christ is our example. It's not a domineering type of leadership. It is the self-giving, self-sacrifice, but strong leadership of Jesus. That's our, our pattern.
Ian. <laughs> Mr. Dobson, I know we're <coughs> trying to say something. Is that right? I'd just like to ask a question. You stressed that the identity of male and female stems from creation uh, very importantly, and that you alluded to, alluded to Big Bang. I just thought, wonder if you could make clear what you thought about that. <laughs> in alluding to the Big Bang, were you affirming your belief in the doctrine of the Big Bang? Is that, is that a question? <laughs> I suppose I view a lot of things as open questions about uh, the relationship of Genesis to scientific theory, maybe more so than most. But I said, if the Big Bang is correct, then that particular aspect of the theory uh, does tie in with the universe as we see it and the universe as God has created it in that it is not a uniform creation. It is a highly complex uh, universe with all kinds of asymmetries within it. And if God created the universe uh, instant, instantaneously, uh, then it's quite possible that it was something along the lines of what scientists may be groping after of an instantaneous <coughs> Uh, creation. The, the great thing about that, we're going off at a tangent from our subject tonight, but the great thing I believe about it is that when I was growing up, science was saying matter is eternal. Now they are saying at one level what the Bible is saying. They were saying there was a specific motion, uh, uh, moment of creation. And to that extent, it's encouraging, I think. And, and so often we can uh, get points of rapport with science rather than always disagreeing with what scientists may be saying. And that's, I suppose, partly what I was doing there tonight. Any other questions anyone would like to ask? One more. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, concerning the man and wife, one man to one wife, uh, I bring here when Abraham had Sarah, but then Abraham went in with Hagar, the Egyptian young lady. Also, Solomon had many wives and many mistresses or concubines. Can you please comment on that? Yes. They must come again. <laughs> <laughs> the answer is very simple. The answer is to consider what the Bible teaches us about those incidents. And it teaches us the horrendous consequences of what happened when God's basic pattern was ignored, both in the case of Abraham and in the case of David and Solomon. It's so, so clear that all the trouble that erupted in their families was because of the disregard of this basic creation pattern. Any other questions? Things is, this is not a question, just a little ad, if I may. But the wonderful thing is that, in spite of the fact that these men did these things, or men, women, and yet God, in His mercy, still used those men yes. in His fulfillment of His promise and His word. Right. And that is an encouragement to us. It is. Yeah. Uh, Mike Johnson over there is cupping his ear. I think Margaret, um, he didn't quite hear what you said, and it's worth repeating. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? I wouldn't. I, I, I know Margaret too well. I wouldn't want to take her words and misuse them or misinterpret them. 
and she, she says them so beautifully. I think it's worth you saying it again. Margaret. Um, I don't respond to that question, which I had in my own mind. I've been thinking it as I sat here. And I thought, yes, the wonderful thing is that in spite, and I think the way that you have answered it, and I may I say any of the questions and what you've given us tonight has been absolutely brilliant and first class, and I'd like to thank you for it. And uh, I think the answer there was absolutely spot on. And the wonderful thing is that in spite of the sin and going against God's law, yet God used those men to fulfill his promise in his way, and he can still use us when we go wrong in other ways. Yes, Yes, sir. In, in the Bible, God is referred to as He. Uh, from what you just said, Enos, Lex, Sheenus, uh, I'm wondering, is that just a, a lack of pronouns in English? <laughs> I didn't quite follow, I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the he, God is referred to as He. All right. When you said that's only half of the picture, uh, is it just that we lack an appropriate pronoun in English to fill like He, or is, is it something else? Well, uh, <laughs> Yes, I, I think God is accommodating himself to us. Um, obviously, we could see perhaps there being some um, uh, correspondence between God and masculinity in the world, but also there's a correspondence between uh, God and femininity because feminine pictures are used of God's love as well, a uh, mother's love for her child and so on. So I think ultimately God transcends sexuality or gender. Uh, yet it is, I suppose, interesting that God chose in the scriptures, it's not just in the English language but in the Hebrew and Greek, uh, that he is described as masculine. Uh, and it seems that wherever divinity has been associated with uh, the female in, in goddesses and so on, that it has had pretty disastrous consequences in terms of society and morality and so on. Now, I don't know, I'm no expert in that whole area, but um, I would say it's something along those lines as being the answer. Yes, 